0: This episode of The Curbsiders is brought to you in partnership with Nef Madness and the American Journal of Kidney Diseases, AJKD. And uh, I guess that Angel. means, <laughs> and this is our final episode. So I guess that means Hannah's back with her final pun.
1: Oh, I can see the thrill on Paul's face. Yes, absolutely. So I'm here with a final pun from Dr. Michelle Rowe, who will need no introduction to our NeFJC uh, audience, but she introduces herself on the track. So here we go. Row it out. My name is Michelle Rowe, and I'm a pediatric nephrologist at the University of Minnesota who does clinical research in glomerular and genetic kidney disease in children. I also thoroughly enjoy being on the board of directors for NFJC, a Twitter-based nephrology journal club that you all should participate in. How
0: do nephrologists know if their research is going well? Low p values.
2: Are we talking about urine?
0: <laughs> <laughs> we should probably just start the episode. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, you should just leave that long stretch of silence in. That is perfect.
2: Entertainment, education, and information purposes only. As discussed, should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the more that use statements expressed on a podcast or so those of those should not be interpreted as official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like morals and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible to You should always do your own homework and let us know if were. Hey, Stuart, we're back. Hi.
0: So, you were under your desk for a second there. Uh, I was so, chasing my cat. The audience can't see you, but I'm sure they'll be glad to know that you're you're chasing a cat around your office as we're supposed to be recording an intro. Or
2: so, so you claim. <laughs> well, I, I heard her scratching down there. I'm afraid she actually used the restroom in here. Oh boy! All right, we we got to finish this up so we can all all get off air, and
0: get to sleep. It's it's very late at night, and Dr. Paul Williams is going to tell us what we do on this show. Uh, this is an episode on from Nef Madness. We're talking about pain management. But Paul, in general, what do we do on this show?
3: In general, I don't even know anymore, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We also get to know our guests up front. I, I mean, listen, you like books, don't you? Everyone likes books. If you don't like books, I'm not sure I want you listening if I'm being honest to you. So sure, go ahead and skip ahead if you hate books. Otherwise, just stick with us. Learn about some books. Get some smarts. Um, that's it. <laughs>
0: that's that's just that's so well said. Thanks. I I always look forward. I'm just like I I don't know what it's what it's going to come out as. Is it going to be angry? Is it going to be? Are you going to give the audience a pass tonight? You told them that if they don't like books, then they can uh, go to hell. Basically. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but on this episode, I, I <laughs> Stewart really likes that one. <laughs> I gotta mute it. <laughs> okay, Stuart muted himself because he's he's in a fit of laughter. On this episode, we have three wonderful guests, and we're talking all about all about pain medication, pain management, and chronic kidney disease. We're specifically we're talking about a couple classes of pharmacologic agents: opioids, tramadol, which we put in its own class, NSAIDs, and gabinergic meds like gabapentin and pregabalin. Uh, we talk about some of the pitfalls of these medications and how you should think about them in CKD. There's a lot of great clinical pearls in here from our guests. Our first guest is Dr. Samantha Gelfin. She is a second-year nephrology fellow at the University of Pennsylvania and the primary author of this year's Neph Madness Region on Pain Medication. She was a resident and chief resident at Yale New Haven Hospital and will soon go on to live it up as a PGY-7, who needs the money, uh, in the high. <laughs> In hospice and palliative, this, this is, um, I should mention, she wrote this bio. So she says she was a resident and chief resident at Yale New Haven Hospital and will soon go on to live it up as a PGY-7, who needs the money, in hospice and palliative medicine fellowship at MGH slash Dana-Farber program in Boston starting in July. She is planning to practice palliative nephrology, also known as renal supportive care, which is focused on alleviating the suffering of people with kidney disease. She is fluent in French and Spanish, forgivable in Italian, and in a prior life, she was an editor-in-chief of Let's Go Travel Guides. Our next guest, Dr. Matthew Sparks, is the co-creator of Neff Madness. He is a physician scientist at Duke University. He is the associate program director for the Nephrology Fellowship and director of medical student research in the Department of Medicine. His lab is interested in understanding Blood pressure control and hypertension pathogenesis by the kidney. He serves on the AJKD Social Media Advisory Board at AJKD Blog and as faculty lead for Renal Fellow Network. He is on the board of NEFJC and a key faculty member of the Nephrology Social Media Collective internship. He serves as editor, ed- education director for the annual KidneyCon conference. Follow him on Twitter at NephroSparks. Our final guest. Dr. David Jerlink is he isn't quite sure how he got involved with this whole thing. He's an internist and clinical pharmacologist slash toxicologist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center with an RE in in Toronto, Canada, North North Dakota. Uh, and head of the Division of Clinical pharmacology at the University of Toronto. He's also a medical toxicologist at the Ontario Poison Center. He divides his time between patient care, teaching, and using big databases to study the safety of prescription dar- drugs in clinical practice. We are thrilled to share these three wonderful guests with you and this great topic from Neff Madness.
2: You know, Matt, if I was a nephrologist, I would name my kids Andrew James and Caitlin. So I could say my kids are AJ and Katie.
0: Very quick disclaimer before we start the show. Dr. Jerlink tells an anecdote from his past when Stuart asked him about a favorite failure. It is probably, I would say, like PG-13. So uh, feel free to skip ahead if you have young kids in the car. But I I think it's relatively harmless and mostly innuendo. All right. Enjoy the show. Thank you to all three of you for coming on the show. So we're going to start with Sam. And Sam, I wanted to ask you, can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and include something outside the world of medicine?
1: Sure. Uh, I love one-liners. Um, okay. I'd say I am a 32-year-old uh, formal, former travel guide editor who changed paths to medicine after suffering a temporary delusion that people would be more fun to edit than books.
0: That's that's pretty good.
2: It's interesting.
0: <laughs> With it outside of medicine, <laughs> yeah, yeah, travel guide that's so you I imagine you got to travel a lot then
1: So I edited uh the guides, <laughs> but we we worked as a group with um researcher writers who were traveling and um sending back copy. okay. It was so. back in the like snail mail days where they had to actually send home paper in a in a um package, and they wouldn't get paid until the package arrived. It was incredible.
0: All right. Matt, did you want to give the audience a one-liner?
4: Okay, uh, I'm Matt Sparks. I uh, was a music major in college. I played the trumpet. My goal was to be a principal trumpet player of a symphony. And I quickly realized that the real reason I was there was to be a high school band director and decided that I did not want to do that. (laughs)
5: okay
4: (laughs) i'm totally lost
3: presumably (laughs) because you love music and hate to hear it tortured (laughs) well
4: it it, uh i love to play music and i necessarily didn't want to like uh make the arrangements on the the football field you know the round (laughs) sort of you've been to a football game you've seen it and uh someone has to design that yeah that's the band director
2: i was in marching band for all four years
4: Okay, then you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely.
0: So how? So you you went from being a trumpet major to pre med, and now it was you're... a really
4: easy thing. And this is how I like to describe it: is that I was in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Arkansas, and if you pull open the course guide, you know, it wasn't online back then; it was just a book, and you would pull up music. And then right before that was a section on microbiology. <laughs> <laughs> and I just was very fascinated with the courses in microbiology so I switched my major to microbiology and I uh, was going to do research and mm-hmm. I decided that hey you could go to medical school be a physician and research and I said that's even better yeah. so it's, it's a very logical progression
2: so you basically plan your life out in alphabetical order in some way exactly yeah that's exactly what happened
0: Dave how about a one-liner from you
5: So I'm a uh, a PGY twenty five internist and uh, a bit of a side hustle in clinical pharmacology and toxicology. Uh, I'll take a. I I was going to say something different, but I'll take a page from uh, Matt's playbook there. So I, I uh, almost went into music for a career too. In fact, in grade ten, I almost failed grade ten actually, and I was sort of sort of dead set on playing drums in a uh, going to a jazz program in rural Nova Scotia. But, uh, I think in the nick of time, I just sort of uh, realized that I wasn't good enough uh, to be a professional uh, drummer. And, uh, as it turns out, uh, I was in a band and the bass player's sister was like five years older than me or six years older. And she was a pharmacist and I had a crush on her. And I thought, uh, that, that, so I got talking to her and I heard of pharmacy. So I ended up, Applying to pharmacy and got into that first, and from there the interest in medicine developed. So, uh I didn't say it was a good story.
0: <laughs> Paul, why don't you why don't you ask 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 a question and before we move on, probably about a book.
3: Yeah, why don't, why don't we? It's an oldie but a goodie. Why don't I start with Sam and ask just recommend any book at all, and it can be that physicians should read. It doesn't have to be medical. It can be fiction, nonfiction, shoot the moon. But just what's a good book we should be reading?
1: mm. Well, it's an it's a oldie, but I think it's a goodie. Um, is the A Movable Feast. You guys read this one? It's by Hemingway. It's a classic. Uh, it's kind of an easy read, a pleasant read, but it's full of um, small vignettes from when he was living in Paris and all of the sort of artsy, um, writerly sort of company that he kept and uh it's it's super escapist and um very very pleasant read so that's my my pick
3: excellent solid recommendation
2: what's your uh kind of along the lines of the favorite failure if you can recall your first patient complaint what did you learn from that and how did that change your change your practice i'm going to throw that to either one of you
5: so what was what was the question again my favorite (laughs) my
2: first patient complaint and what you learned from
5: that if you can recall it (laughs) <laughs> um, well, this is going to come across as a weird one. Uh, I mentioned that I was a, I, I was a pharmacist before I went into medicine. And, uh, so my first patient complaint was as a pharmacy student. And I want you to picture that it's like in the late eighties. And I said my first sort of real proper summer job. And I'm in this dispensary. This was back in the days when you, the people in the dispensary would actually answer the phone. And, um, I pick up the phone and this, uh, Voice asked if we had a product called Two and a Butt. <laughs> and I uh, I sort of said, What? Happened? And uh, it was a woman. She asked again, and I I thought it was a prank. And I sort of said, Well, I I got a bit testy with her, and I and I got I, I got a bit uh, yeah irritated. So she like so like an hour later, this little old lady kind of traipses down the aisle with this box. <laughs> and the box is a hair coloring product called Second Debut. <laughs> but she was pronouncing it and into butt. And so she complained to the manager that I hadn't been very polite to her. Um, uh, he was, um, he, he, we just cracked up after she left because of how she pronounced it. Anyway, uh, what I learned from that is uh, I thought of the story now, but a two into butt is an excellent way of pronouncing that product. And uh, uh, it, you know, uh, sometimes your first impressions are wrong. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. You
3: asked.
0: Okay, I Matt. Like it. I don't
3: have to say anything. <laughs> this has been another episode of the Fire.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Matt, I'm going to give you this dealer's choice. You can give us a book. You can give us a favorite failure, a patient complaint, or just career advice. Whatever you want.
4: For me, right now, I'm, I, it's going to be just uh, something that that that's, that I'm using right now that's helping me out a lot. And I'll say that uh, I've, I found this from Twitter. I was asking people, I was very frustrated with EndNote, just driving me nuts. Mm-hmm. Someone would send me a paper, and then it would, you know, sometimes things, the same thing would be cited three or four times for random reasons. And so I found Zotero. Have you all used this? Yeah. So there's a nice plugin for Google Doc. It works well across different computers. You sign on. You can just go to PubMed, hit a button. You have a plug to your browser, Mozilla or whatever you use, and it's really made my life a lot easier. However, I have not actually shared this document with anyone else yet, so it might not work on the receiving end. But for me personally, it's working out fairly nice. It's a good segue from two in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to, you know, but you know, they, they first told me the name was Zotero, so it's like, okay.
2: There's your two in the butt.
0: <laughs> oh, I get it. There, there it is. That's Second it. Second two nd. What was that? Again? <laughs> it went away. Usually, <laughs> usually Stewart will look up the product that we're talking about, tell us how many copies are left on Amazon, and
2: <laughs> I was looking for how two much in the it's butt. currently
0: selling for. How much is that currently selling for, Stuart? Can I get that on oh, Amazon? Oh, I don't know. I,
2: I couldn't even find that. I found the movable feast, but anyways.
0: All right, <clears throat> Paul, why don't you save us, and let's start with the clinical case here.
3: Sure, that, that sounds great. Um, let's So let's talk. All right, deep centering breath. Let's talk about Mr. Thomas Paine. He is a 62-year-old gentleman. He has a history of high blood pressure, diabetes and chronic kidney disease. His most recent creatinine gave an estimated GFR of 17 and he has a history of significant microalbuminuria categorizing him as CKD 4A3. He is being seen in the clinic because he is complaining of significant knee pain which is from his known osteoarthritis. A knee brace and physical therapy were not helpful. Previous knee injections have helped with pain, but only for a short time. He asks, Doc, these painful times are trying my soul. What can be done for my pain?
2: So insides, right?
3: <laughs> well, I think we wanted to make the, the proviso before we sort of get deep into this episode that we understand that pain management is complex. We understand it's not just medications, but what we're talking about here is primarily safety of medications in patients with chronic kidney disease. I think that's going to be the focus of much of our discussion. So Um, before we get too deep into the weeds, we just want to point out that we realize there are other modalities and other things to talk about in terms of pain management, but we're talking specifically about certain classes of medications. So to start, uh, what are the major pain management modalities in patients with chronic kidney disease?
1: So it's a great question and an important sort of framework to put out there. I hope we get to talk about all of them. Um, We all know it, you know, it like you said just now, pain management's complex. We're just going to focus on the meds. Um, and I think, you know, the when it, you boil it down, if you just boil down every conversation you've ever had on rounds or in clinic, uh, you can start to feel like there's no good option. Like NSAIDs are evil and Tylenol hardly works and opioids are dangerous. And all the rest of them, that get a lot of, um, you know, FaceTime in the press or, or that are other options, tramadol, gabapentin, um, antidepressants, those are those are messy and hard to manage. So, you know, as a nephrologist, I think you can end up feeling um, exasperated or at, at the very worst, nihilistic. Um, but all of those modalities have have benefits and they have potential risks. And depending on the individual patient in front of you, I think any one of them could be useful.
0: And what, what we're hoping to highlight with this show and get from this discussion with you all is, is what types of, you know, what types of pain can we, are we going to face in our patients that have CKD and what are the common classes of medications we might think of using and what sort of pitfalls do we have to look out for so we can safely use these medications. And so the ones I guess we're going to highlight tonight are opioids. You mentioned gabapentin, tramadol, We'll talk about what exactly that is, and then we'll talk about, of course, NSAIDs. So, Sam, uh, why don't you why don't you start with opioids? What are some big things we need to know? And then I want Dave and Matt to to chime in with their two cents as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, opioids. Um, when you're thinking about prescribing an opioid for a uh, pain syndrome in the context of kidney disease, um, I think the most important things is uh, to ask yourself are. Uh, first of all, does the pain syndrome, uh, is it likely to respond to an opioid? And secondly, um, sort of the, the pharmacology of the opioid you're going to choose. So that boils down to two different aspects. Um, number one, what are the metabolites of that opioid? And number two is, are the metabolites cleared by the kidney and are they metabolically active? So this gets back to some stuff I think we learn in med school when you first start learning pharmacology, uh, but somehow uh, doesn't enter into conversation as frequently as it should on rounds, at least not unless a pharmacist is with us, right? Uh, but when I think about it, you know, um, I do think that some people uh, we have we grow familiar with or um, sort of more comfortable with certain opioids because we see them titrated, we see them used often. And those can actually be um, the... Sort of least uh, favorable choices for people with kidney disease because of their metabolites. Um, so specifically, the you know opioids that we commonly see used, um, like morphine, codeine, oxycodone. Um, you know, morphine and codeine specifically, those metabolites are cleared by the kidney and they're metabolically active. So if you give it to someone with kidney disease, um, those metabolites are going to build up and they're going to continue to exert an effect while they're built up in um, someone's system, which results in toxicity um, versus you know, some of the other opioid options like hydromorphone, for example, dilaudid that one is clearly one of the least uh, preferred agents of pretty much um, any house deaf or fellow or nephrologist um, that I work with in general. But actually, in the setting of, of kidney disease, I think the metabolite, which is um, H6G, does build up, but it's completely metabolically inert. So it will eventually be cleared either by the kidney or by dialysis. And in the meantime, it doesn't cause a, a toxicity syndrome.
0: Dave, do you have anything to add to that about the the opioids? Like how do you break, you break them down that way? You have morphine and then you have the, they're the synthetic ones. Is that hydromorphone and oxy? Yeah.
5: Yeah, so the the naturally occurring ones are going to be things that come from the poppy directly, like so, like codeine and a bit of morphine, and everything else is semi synthetic or fully synthetic. In the case of something like fentanyl or tramadol, um, I guess you know, I sort of reflecting on this a little bit, and Sam touched on this a few minutes ago, and she raised an important point. Then I'll let me, let me frame it this way: so if I said to my residents or anyone who's listening to this podcast, um, you had a patient with pain and you're trying to pick a pain medicine for him or her, you know, what are you trying to do? And usually the residents or, or med students will say, we're trying to relieve the pain. And of course that's true. And if you push them a little bit more, you say, well, you know, but what are you really trying to do? And uh, they'll say, well, I'm trying to improve function and improve quality of life. And I think that's how we tend to think. Um, but I think that's a little bit, and not to get too philosophical about it, but I think that's a little bit, um we're tend to focusing on the benefits and what we, and and, and Sam mentioned earlier, sort of the trade-off, the, sort of the benefits versus the harms of the drug. And I think I would put it this way. Um, every time you approach a patient with pain and you're going to start a new medication, what you're trying to do is afford the patient more benefits than harms. It's sort of an obvious thing to say, but it actually bears stating because um with a lot of the agents that we might use, the harms are kind of hard to like. the 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 benefits are relatively easy to sort of pin down, but the harms are sometimes occult. Uh, and I, I can I, not to ramble too much. I can come back to that in a, in a second. But so what when you're treating pain, what you're doing is conducting a little experiment on the patient. And you don't know at the outset what the result of that experiment is going to be. But what you're trying to do is afford the patient more benefits, pain relief, improved function, quality of life, and so on than harms. And the, and, and the, and the thing that I, the issue I have with opioids, and I've changed my thinking on this quite a lot over the last 15 years, is uh, is that the harms um, with chronic use, especially can kind of begin to masquerade as benefit. And if I was to single out one harm, it would be, it would be this issue of dependence. And so you all, you've all seen this happen, right? The person, you know, you, you try some acetaminophen, doesn't work. You're scared of NSAIDs, so you get right to opioids. And after a couple of, certainly a couple of days, or even certainly a few weeks on opioids, people become physically dependent. And that's important because if you cut back the dose or they go without the dose, they feel miserable, right? They've got they've got, uh, you know, they have pain, they've got, uh, you know, insomnia, they've got all of the sort of features that someone with opioid withdrawal, a heroin user might have, Um, and they feel better when they resume the drug. And they totally understandably infer that they, this drug is helping them. And what, you know, so the drug that might have in the first couple of days of therapy really been relieving their pain and making them feel better is now, you know the primary benefit, especially as the dose goes up, is the avoidance of withdrawal. And so I don't mean to belabor that point, but I think it's something we don't talk about nearly enough. And I think uh, so. I, I I'm not saying that we don't have a role for opioids in chronic pain, but w- if we think about that kind of paradigm a little bit more, I think I think we should maybe be a little more critical of, uh, of of the drugs and 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 to interpret the the anecdotes, of the patients we've got, in light of the pharmacology of the the, the drugs uh, that. It works in the background. Sorry for the long-winded answer,
0: Matt. Do you do you use opioid pain meds in any of your patients uh, on dialysis or just with advanced kidney disease? And is there any one that you think is is more preferable?
4: Well, I can honestly say that I have not used opioids for probably five six years, hmm. um, and I think this case in particular really highlights. Of uh, you know, this is someone with the EGFR of 17 and very late stage kidney disease and uh, you also have another situation where the prescription of an opioid could really um, alter, you know, sort of how you're going to examine the patient or see them and, um, you know, when they start having symptoms of, of kidney failure and, and potentially needing kidney replacement therapy, um, it, it would, it's going to color sort of how the patient's feeling. Uh, so this is a, a really tricky situation. I'll say this is a very unusual scenario when someone comes to you and is not already on many of the other drugs that we are are in this nephmadness Madness region, uh, gabapentinoids and others, um, and really highlights the, the high-risk scenario that they're under. And there's a lot of research that's happening now to show that uh, patients that are on dialysis – and I would probably lump someone who has an EGFR of 17 as pretty much being there – um, have higher rates of falls and altered mental status. Uh, they're on uh, muscle relaxants as well, which have their own problems. But I do think it's important, and outside of this case, and, and, and we've talked a lot about um, ensuring that you talk about the negative aspects of opioids, but it is still important to, for individuals to know which ones to avoid. And we see this all the time. Um, and, and this has happens and I've been on a real big kick to stop Baclofen. They say, well, well, what should we take? And I'm like, well, I'm not really advocating anything. I'm just telling you what you shouldn't do. <laughs> hmm. uh, so and so awesome. this, you talk about morphine, meparidine, codeine, these are no-nos, like never. And so that, I think that's what we want to highlight those because they do have these toxic metabolites that, um, are more powerful than from whence they came. And that's really a scary thing. And, uh they also are very protein bound they're hard to remove by dialysis, so they'll stick in the system for a long time and they're uh, that they can really pose a very difficult problem when, for instance, we've seen patients in the hospital who get morphine yeah, it's kind of scary
2: though because the the uh the the opioids that are recommended are we don't have a lot of experience with, at least most internists don't, like methadone, buprenorphine, fentanyl, hydromorphone. When you think about someone leaving on oral hydromorphone, that just kind of makes you feel a little queasy.
5: In Canada, I mean, we see it all the time. It's probably our number one opioid here. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I just Matt's comment about never morphine. You mean that for chronic pain, right? I'm talking about a
4: patient on dialysis. Mm. Fair enough. Okay. Talking about someone with a really reduced EGFR, you just have to watch out.
1: And I'll say, you know, I am currently a nephrology fellow, and um, you know, avoid NSAIDs, avoid nephrotoxins. These are not helpful statements to anyone mm-hmm. in notes. Um, do not give uh, is also, you know, something I try to avoid as a blanket statement in my notes. Because take this patient you were from Kashlak uh, with the GFR of 17, and say instead of you know, chronic knee pain, he was coming in with an acute pain. Um, you're facing a hard decision there where, for that person, um, an NSAID may actually be that straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of tipping him over um, into an AKI that ends up resulting in a requirement for uh, dialysis. So it might avoid starting an opioid, which everybody wants to champion, and it's clearly a good idea epidemiologically. But for the individual patient, I just think it's very complex to say, do not give. Um, you know, as a blanket statement, you're going to always be weighing the risk benefit and the chronicity of how long you're going to be using it. And um, it's it's a pretty individualized uh, uh, judgment call.
4: I will say that us adding baclofen to our notes has really helped a lot in people not giving it to patients that are on dialysis, for instance.
0: I wonder if so it's I, that I do sticks agree. out, because it's not, I think because it's not well known, it might just jump out at people that Hey, don't use this baclofen. Oh, wait, why should I use that? And then they realize that it's renally cleared.
4: But I think it, it. I I think the NSAID one is a good one. We'll get to later, and I, mm-hmm. I completely agree with. Um, you know, there there is some scenarios in which it can be helpful. Uh, so just a blanket statement can be uh, dangerous. But uh, there are other. But and it. But I think that there's a conversation that can occur, and I've been really thinking about this. And how do we educate people? Uh, about these things, um, and you know they're not getting it in the books, um, the lectures. Uh, it's happening, um, so that's why we started uh, button campaigns, wearing buttons in the hospital to to bring awareness to some of these these medications that are dangerous in patients on kidney disease. And I'm thinking about you know what are ways in which we can um, get our our message out about um what drugs should be and maybe maybe not avoid but use it uh, cautiously or maybe you know hey you should ask me about this uh um uh, medication that has a, a a lot of problems in in patients with kidney failure and and i just don't think that it's on the radar of the general internist um and i get all the time wow i never knew that you know i never knew baclofen was cleared by the right. kidney and, you know, i never knew you know and so that it's very important to, to get that message out there.
1: So I just want to respond to one other thing you said, Stuart, which was, you know, the, the options that are safest, um, quote unquote safest in, in CKD, like hydromorphone and methadone and buprenorphine. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a complex social historical thing that methadone and buprenorphine are as, um, siloed as they are in the U S. And I just recently got I did this amazing um, month-long rotation in Sydney, where I was learning about palliative care in nephrology. And one of their um, one of their s- sort of safest uh, titratable opioid options for pain in people with kidney disease is actually a Norspan patch, which is buprenorphine. Um, I don't know, uh, Dave, if that's available in Canada, but I think it's it's too bad that we don't have it as an option um, in well, this you, country.
5: You, you you do have a patch in the U.S. Uh, I forget the name of it, but it's approved by the FDA for chronic pain. It's so buprenorphine, bu- uh, but is the same same as here. But you, so, you still B-trans need an
1: X page. waiver to prescribe yeah, it. Yeah, well,
5: right? so so you it's yeah so. The US, no offense, guys, but the US is weird on the whole buprenorphine thing. Like oh it my gosh. is totally you know, the, the idea that you can come out of medical school and on your first day with an MD, you can write a prescription for fentanyl patches, but you need some special training to write a prescription for bupe is yeah. crazy. It's insane. You know, people die because of it. People die because of that. I mean it's really it's not it's not um uh, it's it's very difficult to justify. Um buprenorphine is um, I mean it I, it's a special drug. I, I have seen uh, I mean, not just for patients with addiction, but for pain. Uh, I've seen people. I, I use it a fair bit to transition people, CKD or not, off of high doses of opioids. People who are on two, three hundred, four hundred milligrams of morphine a day, and uh, you know, done properly, their their pain very often improves dramatically, and their quality of life improves. It's 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 an incredibly versatile and and quite safe drug compared to full agonists.
0: Our our producer, Justin, is is sending us, a, just to clarify, in the U.S., I'm pretty sure that you can prescribe buprenorphine for pain without an X-waiver. Yes. The X-waiver yes. is for addiction treatment. Addiction.
2: Yes. That's right. Exactly.
0: Dave, I wanted to ask you about the WHO ladder, specifically for uh, chronic pain management in CKD4 and 5. It, it lists step one is acetaminophen, step two, use with caution, tramadol. And step hmm. three is for severe pain. They 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 prefer hydromorphone, fentanyl, methadone, buprenorphine. That's where Stuart was getting that from. And they say, cautious, you would cautiously use oxycodone. And as Matt's pointed out multiple times, morphine, meperidine, propoxyphene, codeine. Those ones are you know sh- should not use in CKD. Can you yeah. can you comment on? if you are using any opioids in patients with chronic pain and CKD and, and how do you approach that is?
5: Well, I think it's, so it's important. The, the whole issue of opioids for chronic pain, you'll get very different questions when you ask different clinicians and, and and people have very divergent views on the role of opioids for chronic pain. Um, I, I I don't prescribe them very often. Uh, And when I do, um, it is with a lot more, caution than i did 15 or 20 years ago like i thought nothing 20 years ago i had a patient with sickle cell crisis and they were on high doses of opioids and i i just they came in in pain crises i bumped their pain meds up uh, and i didn't think about it i sort of i had this simplistic and i think a lot of us still have this sort of kind of simplistic you know well it's full agonist and if the patient's still got pain you just need more of it as if that's as if it's, as if it's that simple and it's way more complicated than that because because the you know all of the side effects are dose dependent. And when you get to doses, uh, like like I was referring to a while ago, it's very easy to harm the patient more than help them. But back to your your question, um, the the latter is not nearly creative creative enough. and I think and I think you know I, I have a um like I think there's this we we start with, acetaminophen, then we go to NSAIDs, then we go to opioids, and we throw in gabapentin or, or antidepressants just because we're trying to find the right sort of concoction for a given patient. Um, I you know I don't know how, it's probably very state dependent in the US, but I, I think we might want to give a little more consideration to cannabinoids, not inhaled, not, not, I'm not saying a person should roll a joint and smoke it necessarily, but oral cannabinoids. I mean, there's a good example of a drug. It might not help. But you know, it's probably not going to hurt. At least it's not. It's not got no side effects. But but it's, it doesn't have the same pharmacological baggage as NSAIDs and opioids. So if I, you know, I'm looking at this case here and thinking, you know, if I had some 60-year-old guy with bad CKD and I was kind of reluctant to use NSAIDs and I didn't want to commit him to chronic opioid therapy, and I don't think a whole lot, honestly, about some of the other drugs we'll talk about, if that guy says to me, "Listen, I can get, I can." Um, you know at bedtime take a puff off a vaporizer or i can take a small dose of some cbd oil or low thc oil and it doesn't interfere with my function too much and my pain is better i think that's a win so i think that the the idea that this ladder exists and by the way the original who pain ladder that was just bastardized for decades was introduced in 1986 and it was meant for cancer pain and we just took it and just extrapolated it to chronic pain based upon nothing like, no right. data at all. Um, but it, 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 there are so many other things we might consider. And um, I think it's easy to be a little too enthusiastic about cannabinoids, but I think they're a, a consideration.
2: What about uh, ketamine for chronic pain for dialysis patients?
5: Well, I'm a huge fan of ketamine in the hospital. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very versatile, extremely safe a uh, drug, you know, 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2 makes per kilo IV over 15 minutes. Um, it's hard to hurt somebody. You give it too quickly, you space them out for a little while, and that's about it. Um, I, 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 as an oral agent for long, chronic pain, I don't think it's a good idea. There's, there's, it's hard to get. Um, but even if you could find someone who did respond to it, it's got some serious bladder issues that we don't. I mean, you, occasionally we'll see people who get. Um, you know, chronic, nasty um, uh, you know irritative bladder and 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 sometimes even uh, upper g i upper, upper g symptoms from from ketamine. so I, I, I to me it's a it's a versatile opioid sparing drug in the acute care setting. I don't think it's got a huge role to play in chronic pain.
3: well, I find it kind of curious that we're ignoring, I feel like an obvious choice, the completely non addictive as good as opioids <laughs> um, reliable, particularly dose tramadol. I mean, it's, oh, yes. it's right there uh, it's yes. safe,
5: yes, yes. I totally walked past your, you you asked the question about tramadol and I, I, you put it in the ladder and I just talked around it. You did. So uh, do you want me to talk about tramadol? Should I just unleash that? (laughs)
0: Yes.
4: Nothing we would love more. It's what we want. (laughs) Okay. Game for
5: it. So just to make a point. So if if anybody, I wrote a a blog post about this on uh, the talks in the hound a couple months ago. Um, I I should make clear that I think there are some people that tramadol can help, and you will find people who are on low doses of tramadol, and it seems to be achieving the goal we talked about—you know, benefits exceeding harms. Um, But tramadol is a funny drug. So tramadol itself, this is a synthetic opioid made in the 60s. It is an SNRI. It's more or less like venlafaxine, and it interferes with the reuptake of serotonin, norepinephrine, and, and it interferes with pain pathways through that mechanism in, in the dorsal horn. It's metabolized, though, to an opioid, a pretty good mu agonist. It um, goes by a d- couple of names, but M1 is the, sort of the common name of it. So, so we, we, tramadol enters our, our, uh, you know, our, our armamentarium with this. It's advertised as having two mechanisms of action. It's got a bit of an SNRI. It's got a bit of an opioid. Doesn't that sound great? And it's also perceived as a mild opioid. And in a lot of countries, and including until recently in Canada, it wasn't treated as a controlled substance. You know, it was in the same, in Canada for years, it was in the same, you know, classification as a torpostat and their you needed a prescription. Uh, but it wasn't, you know, a lot of docs and dentists had the perception that it was somehow devoid of all the opioid-related harms, despite the fact that its metabolite is an opioid. The problem I've got with tramadol isn't just that kind of messiness. It's the fact that the conversion of the SNRI parent compound tramadol to its metabolite is accomplished by an enzyme in the liver, the same enzyme that turns codeine into morphine, CYP2D6. And um, we have wildly varying levels of that enzyme. Some of us have none. We won't make any opioid. Some of us have several copies of the gene that encodes for 2D6 and will turn tramadol into M1 like nobody's business. So you know, the idea, when you start somebody in tramadol, in that little experiment I mentioned a while ago, where you're trying to help more than harm, um, you're introducing this, uh, this variability, this, this, this. Um, like you don't know whether you're giving somebody mostly Venlo vaccine or a lot of morphine equivalents. Like you just you you, you don't know. And I think um, it's not that it's uh, it's not that it's wrong to ever use it, but I think it doesn't make a whole lot of sense.
0: As you're saying this about this, I I think probably if everyone thinks back clinically to patients they've seen and talked to about tramadol, you get some of these patients to say tramadol doesn't work. And then you get maybe a small subset of patients that are like, I love tramadol. It works well for me. I feel okay on it. And those are the only patients Mm -hmm. that I'm really using it for. Uh, Of course, we've all read this, uh, this toxin hound post, which I have to say is legitimately... I mean, other than Sam's Neff Madness uh, post that she wrote, um, this is one of my favorite pieces of medical writing. I, I mean, it's just, you you, you, mentioned, you mentioned that, uh, I think this is, you, you're talking about that the active metabolite is ODT, which is a mu opioid mm. agonist. And you say ODT should not be confused with founding member of Wu-Tang Clan, ODB, old dirty bastard, <laughs> yeah. who collapsed and died in 2004 with cocaine, and I kid you not, tramadol in his system. Uh, I thought that was finding a way to put ODB into a blog post about tramadol and make your point. Uh, just really, I, I can, I can die now. It's you, a, yeah. Like your career may you, if you retired, what I will mean, be in your system? <laughs> <laughs> ODB. So yeah. So I think that, and, and, and yeah, the point, so the point you're making is what I'm hearing is that patients that, uh, take tramadol we don't know if they're going to get just the snri effect or if they're going to get a little bit of the mu opioid agonism or if they're going to get a lot of it really quickly and then can you talk a little bit about the um kind of the variation you said in the middle east or some other places maybe it's more likely uh, to be abused
5: right so that enzyme that cyp2d6 enzyme that turns codeine on like codeine for example doesn't have any analgesic effects until it's turned into morphine tramadol is converted to M1, that enzyme varies, uh, like like most, you know, genetic things, it tends to travel and sort of respects ethno-geographic sort of um, areas of the planet. If you're in the Horn of Africa, so, you know, Ethiopia, Somalia, probably a third of people, or in Saudi, uh, the Arabian Peninsula, probably a third of people are ultra-rapid metabolizers. They'll, They'll convert tramadol to M1 very efficiently. If you go north, the farther you go from the equator, the less likely you are to be a uh, an ultra rapid 2d6 and in fact if you go to scandinavia it's pretty common for people to have no functional 2d6 and if you give them coding you know not, my limited experience with people from uh finland is they don't want analgizy anyway but if you did give somebody from finland coding it wasn't it's not going to do anything to them um and and tramadol might have some ssri or snri kind of effects but not so much of an opioid effect in that in that group you you could in theory genotype somebody um but uh Like, I think that's just unnecessary. It just complicates matters. And even if you did genotype somebody, if you genotype me and found that I had, you know, ultra rapid 2D6 and I should, in theory, turn tramadol into its metabolite, um, I might be on bupropion or I might be on paroxetine or something else that turns off 2D6. And this is another issue, by the way, if you happen to have someone on tramadol and they're doing okay, and then you deploy some 2D6-inhibiting drug, like bupropion or paroxetine and be the biggies, or amiodarone, Um, you could precipitate opioid withdrawal. So one of the other concerns I've got with tramadol is interactions. So.
1: Yeah, and on that yeah. note you know everything we're saying about tramadol applies to anyone taking tramadol um in the context of people with kidney disease the interaction is just something we we have to think about carefully since mm. the average patient on dialysis is on something like 19 medicines so i think we're just uh, you know that's true no matter what 19. when you're on that many yeah
0: yeah. And so some, uh, some of the other concerns, because I think we should move on to NSAIDs and the GABAergic drugs. So this is kind of the first part we were we essentially Matt Matt Sparks was sending sending us a message. We're we're not we haven't we haven't mentioned uh, that this is these are the categories in neph madness, right? So there's opioids versus NSAIDs. So we're about to talk about NSAIDs next, and we kind of jumped the gun. We talked about Tramadol ahead of time, but Tramadol is going against what, Matt?
4: It's going to be against gabapentinoids.
0: Okay. So the, so, so that's
4: a lump them all together. And we just I just want to talk about this really quick and that that people always ask, like, well, how do you pick a winner and why would one win over the other? And I think that one of the things about Neff Madness is like how long a team stays alive in the tournament is more time we get to educate people about whatever the topic may be. So it's not necessarily saying that one is better than the other for pain meds. It's that now we have another platform to talk about one of them and not the other. And so that's how We sort of see it now. That the Blue Ribbon Panel is a panel of uh, esteemed nephrologists throughout the uh, the world, and they pick the winners. And so we don't really know if they think like I think, or (laughs) what you know how Joel thinks. But that's sort of how, how we sort of envision this would be. And just like on a test, when you miss a question on a test. Um, you tend to actually, that's when you finally learn it. <laughs> um, well, you'll
0: be, you'll and, be excited to know that our producer, Justin Burke picked normal saline to
4: go all the way. So if that would be, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah,
4: no, we'll see about that. Well, there's our, there's <laughs> our nine nephrologists that are, um, that, you know, yeah, we have a, a love, hate relationship with normal saline. We're not even going to go there on this podcast at all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll we talk spent, about it in other ones.
0: Yeah. We spent, uh, on this, by the time this airs, the, uh, the, the normal, the fluid wars one will have aired. Okay, so tramadol, some other things to point out, Uh, look out for seizures, possibly serotonin syndrome if you combine it with a bunch of other drugs, and hypoglycemia as well, but you can read the the post on Toxin the Hound we'll listen to. You can read Sam's write-up for Neff Madness as well if you want more on that. And now, uh, why don't we go, Sam, so back to this case, our guy with knee pain here, why not give him an NSAID? What, yeah. what's the downside? You, you mentioned already his GFR is kind of on the last legs here. Is His he eGFR.
1: Yeah. So, right. Um, contrary to what will have you believe that entities are evil, no matter what, I think the, um, the data over the last 30 years of, uh, studying it is, um, a bit mixed on whether, um, you know, whether, so long-term NSAIDs have a, a direct effect on um, increasing incidence or progression of CKD. It's different from this situation where this person is um, living on the verge of where we start to see symptoms and metabolic consequences of renal failure, which is a GFR, um, usually around 15, although that varies from person to person. So, you know, why avoid an NSAID in this person? Well, uh, how do NSAIDs work? Um they inhibit prostaglandins and thereby inhibiting prostaglandin mediated inflammation, um, which we perceive as painful. Uh, so that's a good thing in general when you have a, um, you know, a toothache or a um, inflamed, uh, uh, I don't know what, but um, knee, <laughs> knee. Well, no, but gout flare. <laughs> yeah, gout flare. The um, The problem with inhibiting prostaglandins um, in certain people with kidney disease is that renal blood flow in some people is prostaglandin-dependent. So um, there are some specific conditions that um, worry us most, uh, and mostly conditions of, you know, reduced effective arterial blood volume, um, like heart failure, uh, uh, cirrhosis with um, portal hypertension, and sometimes nephrotic syndrome. Um, In those people... The systemic physiology is such that the renal blood flow is dependent on the prostaglandin. So you give an NSAID and you will see the GFR go down because you will see less filtering. I mean, less blood is really um, getting to the filter and therefore um, creatinine goes up and everybody gets worried. Um, I think, you know, even if you don't have one of those three conditions, when you are this close to the border of... um, of stage five CKD and, and needing to make decisions about dialysis, uh, you're running a a risk there that even a transient um, reduction in blood flow from say three days of NSAIDs, uh, you might or might not rebound from that when you um, when you stop the NSAID. So this particular situation is a bit risky. On the other hand, things I think we don't appreciate is that, you know, for example, an aneuric person, someone on dialysis, all of those effects um, that we're talking about—the uh, reduction of, of renal blood flow, as well as some of the more um, sort of electrolyte-related effects of, of sodium retention, hypertension—all of those are out the window if you're aneuric. Um, and so, I think you know, if this person were already on dialysis and he's having a flare of his chronic knee pain, a short course of NSAIDs is a, is a reasonable option, knowing that, of course, AKI is not the only uh, risk of NSAIDs. You have to be on the lookout for uh, uh, GI toxicity, bleeding, um, you know, other, other aspects of it. But th- that's a, it's a good example of, of how the individual case really uh, helps you make the judgment call of how safe or um, worthwhile the risk the, the medicine is going to be.
0: Dave, you have any comments on NSAIDs and CKD or just in general?
5: Yeah, I think, um, so general comment, I think, you know, we've all been burned by NSAIDs in one way or another, right? So GI bleeds or AKI or heart failure or what have you. I do think that over the last couple of decades, we've been... um, we, we've been sort of we've been inculcated with this idea that opioids are safer than NSAIDs. The pendulum's starting to swing a little bit, um, but especially in older people, there's this perception that you wouldn't touch an old person with uh, NSAIDs. But you know opioids are okay. Um, I think I've sort of staked out my thoughts on that a little while ago. In this guy. Um, yeah, I sort of agree with Sam. I, I'm kind of worried about his afferent arterial. I'm worried about uh, about making his GFR seventeen um, drop. And I, I guess he's also uh, um, he's also diabetic. Uh, is he on? He's, I don't know if he's on an ACE or not. But you know, there's also the risk of hyperkalemia here, and and being and having a, a diabetes is going to be an independent risk factor for that. So I, I don't know. I'd be I'd be pretty reluctant, um, much as I generally favor NSAIDs over opioids, I'd be, I'd be kind of reluctant in this fellow, given how precarious he, he sounds.
0: Matt, I'm going to ask you the tough question. Actually, I know Stuart, Stuart's probably going to ask this one if I don't. Stuart, the topical NSAIDs?
2: Absolutely. I wanted to ask that specifically.
4: Okay, so that's mine, okay. i yeah, I think that it, i mean from from what i've I've seen about topical insets not not a lot will be absorbed, and that could actually be an option for this individual, but one of the things I wanted to highlight um outside of uh, what we've already talked about is that um chronic inset use can also lead to hypertension um and you will see in um in patients that you'll take care of wow you know stop the inset and your blood pressure comes down and there's a, a variety of mechanisms that um that of why this occurs and we're trying to understand that and try to um you know minimize that effect so uh hypertension is something that um this is a little outside the context of necessarily ckd but that effect is even worse in, in a, CK, a patient with ckd
2: does the uh, the site of location affect the absorption at all, or the renal adverse events? Like, let's say I have some lower back pain, but it's actually costovertebral angle tenderness, and I'm putting it right over over my kidney. <laughs>
4: you,
2: wanna, you just
4: want to, uh, yeah. So if you actually place the patch on the kidney, is that what you're trying to do? <laughs> let's not do that.
0: Dave, do you know? Do you know much uh, up in Canada? Are topical NSAIDs used much? Do you know much about? The, yep. Have much experience using them in patients with CKD? Does it give you pause?
5: Um, well, I mean, they certainly get diclofenac in particular gets a fair bit of use. Um, uh, i i got to say i don't usually get too concerned about maybe i haven't thought about this enough but i i would uh, have no problem if, again if the goal is to, the, the experiment and the, the you know if have a chance of helping the patient i think the the, the harms have got to be lower than systemic ones so i i wouldn't uh, i'd keep an eye on someone's creatinine but i i wouldn't uh, be reluctant to try a topical NSAID
2: so the, the only patient that I've had an adverse event uh, that I know of from using topical diclofenac was a patient that I prescribed two tubes of it, and uh, it described that he's only supposed to use it for, for his hand pain, but the script said, apply as directed over painful areas. So he goes home, he takes the two tubes, and he takes a shower with, he basically rubs all over his body. comes back, his creatinine went from uh, a 1.2 to 5.7 in a two-day period.
5: So has this changed your? He covered his whole his whole body with it. He covered yeah. his whole body in it. So now, so. when you first
2: it, do you specifically talk <laughs> <Yeah>. about that? <coughs> yeah. Well, I, I did I did then as well, but but the the script the the script got changed after I put it in. So I don't. Know. Yeah, that don't know.
0: that, that pa- I'm assuming that patient didn't have copays for his medication. He was not worried about using it all in, <laughs> in one application. <laughs> no.
4: He brushing his teeth with it too. Yeah. <laughs> um, in my research lab we we one of our one of our uh, goals is to try to understand how um the different prostanoid receptors cause hypertension. Um so we have cell specific deletion of uh, the EP4 receptor. The the e, the prostaglandin uh, binds to one of four different GPCRs. Um EP1, mm-hmm. 2, 3 and 4. Uh, each one has different actions around different cell lineages. And the one that we're particularly interested is the um, EP4 receptor, which does have a lot of expression in the kidney. And so this is really fascinating area, which I think maybe we'll, uh, we'll have our own podcast about if anyone's interested in listening to it. Um, But um, I do think that, uh, you know, you would be that the kidney has a lot of different ways it utilizes this entire arachidonic acid cascade. And I think that's where, as nephrologists, we say, you know, it's, it, it's complex. It's not just the afferent arterial. It's receptors in the tubules. It's uh, uh, immune cells. It's, uh, uh, it's in the podocytes. It's all over. And, um, and I think that's where we – just as we have talked about with tramadol and, um, and, and uh, all these other uh, drugs is that it's, they, they do affect biologic function.
2: Well, if you want to start a, ki- a uh, kidney podcast, you're in the right place.
1: <laughs> All
0: right. I- I'm going to ignore that comment. And I, I wanted to make uh, two points before we moved on. Uh, Sam, you were mentioning patients should be, if they're aneuric, uh, th- so that-, that means we should ask patients on dialysis if they are still making urine, because if, not- if they are, then we probably shouldn't be so cavalier with the NSAIDs. That's what I'm getting from what you were, you were mentioning there.
1: Totes. And okay. actually knowing whether your dialysis patient makes urine at all will is helpful for more than just NSAIDs. Uh, it it changes their prognosis. It changes how you should think about IV contrast. It's a good thing to ask on any sort of history.
0: So the the last thing I wanted to say about NSAIDs, we did a show with Joel. Uh, Joel, Matt has, uh, in pre-recording, Matt claimed uh, your job as the chief of nephrology at Cashlack Memorial. I'll let you guys fight that out there. <laughs> but uh, so our former chief of nephrology, Joel Toff, uh, Joel, please don't come after me on Twitter. Um, he he actually, he did an episode with us on CKD and we talked a lot about medications and he has a whole presentation he gives about all the evidence for patients with less severe CKD and and the use of NSAID. So they you can go to that podcast. I think it's like number 64, or 66, something like that. We talked about that. So we'll put that in the show notes for you. Um, but we're talking about patients with more severe advanced kidney disease in, in this part here. But maybe his point was that for patients with less severe disease, um, you might think about using them, but you got to be careful with what else they're on. So, Paul, did you want to get us into the next part of the case?
3: Sure. Nothing I would love more. So, but unfortunately, Mr. Payne reports that in addition to his knee pain, he's having pins and needle pain in his toes and feet. And this has really been bothering him. It's decreased his ability to perform his daily activities. It's been hampering his independence. Are there other medications that could help with this type of neuropathic pain? And so I, I think this is our oh-so-smooth segue into the gabinergic <laughs> medications like gabapentin and pregabalin, for pain and, and how effective and safe they are in CKD.
1: Yeah. So sounds like uh, uh, this patient who has diabetes has... Uh, peripheral symmetric uh, distal neuropathy that is probably diabetic neuropathy. And that's so common in in people with uh, CKD and and people without. So the last section is about, um, you know, these gabanergics, which, you know, gabapentinoids, gabanergics. I think we've made up both of those words. Uh, (laughs) But it's essentially the the class of meds that has been um, synthesized to be an analog basically of the neurotransmitter GABA, which diminishes uh, pain transmission through, you know, the central nervous system and basically a reduction of the glutamate uh, mediated pathway of pain signaling. Um, I think when you're, uh, considering one of these meds, a lot of a lot of feelings and experiences come up. There's both the experience of giving it to someone and watching them turn into a zombie with uh, altered mental status and myoclonus and um, all sorts of odd behaviors. And then there's the opposite end of the spectrum where you give it to someone and they, they lose uh, some faith in you because they say it didn't work at all. And, um, you know, what can you do for real for my pain? I, you know, more optimistically, I've come around to um, find a sweet spot for these meds and a real s- a role for them, as long as they're given with, with expectation management and with a really careful eye on dosing um, related to to kidney function, as well as um, other meds and and the uh, overall uh, sort of function and and uh, illness state of the person.
0: I do want to get comments from from everybody on this. My my first experience with gab with a gabapentinoid, um, I guess, adverse reaction I could say was as an intern at Cashlack, A woman got admitted with altered mental status, totally somnolent. Wasn't intubated, but was to the point where we were doing lumbar punctures and everything. Finally, twenty four hours into the admission, her nephrologist calls, uh, got a hold of us, found out she was there somehow, and he said hey, listen, I know what's wrong with her. She always takes too much. She's supposed to take it only once every two days, her gabapentin, but she was taking too much. And all we did was just watch her. Um, You know, we had already done the LP and things and she just, she got better with zero treatment at all. It was just all gabapentin. When she woke up and finally a family member came out of the woodwork, we, we found out she had just been taking tons of her gabapentin. So it was a good lesson to learn early in my intern year where I was just like always, have always been very like, you know that's the kind of thing you don't forget seeing, because um, this woman she was so sick seemingly, and it was all just this medication.
4: I think that's what we, as nephrologists, we see this all the time, and we say, "It's the medicine, it's the medicine, it's the medicine." And like you said, they even though they were prescribed a certain amount does not necessarily mean that's how much they were taking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I agree with Sam on this point, though. This these can be useful in the right scenario. Um, neuropathic pain is one of those, especially in diabetes that I have had some success. Um, but meticulous control, uh, you know, meticulously looking at their, um, GFR and dosing the medication, uh, appropriately, and that's not maxing it. I always like to go below what the dosing, um, you know, sort of guidelines say in that, and then also really educate them that this is not something that you, Want to misuse and 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 just take a whole lot of it. And uh, another another thing to to tell them is that uh, you shouldn't drive after taking it. You know you can, um, you know you can become altered or uh, and then so there's a there's a lot of caveats to these. And I think that's why pain management is very uh, challenging because um, it can spend a lot of time talking to them about pain, how to do it right, what you need to think about, and so. Uh, it's a serious thing that you need to consider when you you're you're, you're wanting to put someone on a gab medication with decreased kidney function, and that's why uh, you know when someone's kidney function is getting around the 15 fifteen twenty uh, range, um, we're seeing them a lot as a nephrologist and, and in concert with their primary care physician because they're like things are rapidly evolving, and that's where you have to make these dose adjustments. On a, on um, on a you know visit once a month or once a week.
0: Dave, are you using gabapentin pregabalin in patients with CKD? And do you have any any words of wisdom for for the audience?
5: Yeah, so I think these drugs get used a lot, um, and I think uh, I think they aren't as, aren't as effective as there's I think there's this perception that they're useful opioid sparing agents and that we can use them to sort of avoid opioids or minimize the dose of opioids that we use. And uh, I guess because of the GABA sort of, they are GABA analogs structurally, although they don't actually do much at GABA receptors. Th- there's this perception that maybe they're sort of preferred therapy for, for for neuropathic pain. I won't say that they don't work. I mean, you can find some people in whom they will help. Um, but you know, the data on the drugs is really pretty abysmal when you look at it. And I think that, um, and, and they all, they also have, they're prone to misuse. They've got a well-described withdrawal syndrome. Um, I, so I will sometimes use them, but again, without Oh, I'm just I'm just going through that whole exercise of trying to roll the dice and see if I can help the patient feel better. But I've got very little in the way of expectations. If they help, great. If they don't, I would have a low threshold to try and you know abandon them after a week or two. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they are very popular here.
0: So generally, uh, generally with all these meds, the whole start low, go slow thing when you're coming down off the drugs is it a similar thing you for gabergic for the gabapentin and pregabalin you also come down slowly yeah. on them
5: yeah it's probably less of an issue in patients with CKD because they're going to the drugs will hang around and they'll coast sort of just the kinetics will be such that they'll coast off a little more um, a little more uh, you know gradually anyway but if you had someone who was on you know 1800 of gabapentin a day we see this not infrequently um, and they were to go without. I mean, they they can get a pretty impressive withdrawal syndrome. It looks it looks no small amount like alcohol withdrawal, um, uh, and it's you can pretty pretty impressive. yeah, yeah I,
1: And just to compare numbers, you know, when we're talking about starting gabapentin or pregabalin for someone with advanced CKD, you know, the numbers I usually have in mind are you know gabapentin of a hundred milligrams, uh, mm-hmm. you know, on dialysis days only. Uh, not three times a day, slowly up titrating to effect, but sometimes, you know, toxicity is too great. And for pregabalin, we're talking 25 milligrams a day, not your, you know, standard starting dose of 75. So it's really, uh, I think, important to stress those recommendations as starting doses, because um, you'll you'll never use the drug again if you give a high dose and they have a terrible uh,
5: yeah. uh, zombie episode. I, I, th- I think my, I would just make sure that people have... And I think maybe Sam said this: minimizing expectations. I mean, great if they really afford an improvement in pain and function, but I, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I'll go let and say I wouldn't expect them to do that. Um, I think that they they can sometimes help, but more often than not, I just sort of disappointing.
4: I, I wanted to make a point though that a lot of times, as a nephrologist, when we're seeing patients, it's very, very rarely that I ever start these meds. And most mm-hmm. of the time it's uh it's ratcheting back to stopping. So it's mm-hmm. an important thing though to look at the patient and look at their med list to reconcile those medications, see what they're on, ensure the dosing is correct, and and be proactive in this approach. Um we spot we spend a lot of time talking about indications for starting, but we haven't really focused a lot of time on ensuring there that we are actively decreasing the dose uh, when their eGFR starts to drop.
0: We we've talked about this on prior shows but can you can you Matt can you tell us what do you use to estimate the the GFR are you doing a creatinine clearance with Cockcroft galt can you what how do you recommend the audience tackle that?
4: Well there's multiple ways that you can estimate someone's glomerular filtration rate which is how we measure uh, kidney function. Um, the FDA, when they're approving drugs or w- what have you, talking about um, dosing, unfortunately still use Cockcroft Galt, um, which is a historical sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, at the hospital, we do not use that. We use usually the CKD Epi uh, or the MDRD equation, um, uh, which is a, it's a little more accurate than the. Uh, cockcroft galt which was first published in 1976 uh, in an obscure journal called Nephron, which no longer exists. Um, but I think in in the end, uh, both the CKD-EPI the uh, and the uh, MDRD equation will will give you similar results that you can sort of um, look at uh, that number and then make a determination for what sort of their kidney function is, and so. It's not always like this is the exact EGFR this patient has because, as you know, you can measure it each day and it will change just a bit. Um, but it's sort of uh, you need to understand, is this very severe kidney function um, decline? So, for instance, the patient has EGFR of 17. Um, and as Sam mentioned several times, that this is where we start to see symptoms um, down to the 15, uh, 10 range. And so that's pretty... Pretty poor kidney function, and then you look at the other, say thirty, uh, still very very depressed kidney function, and, and sixty, uh, that that sort of gets you to see a nephrologist. So that you know, just sort of understand that um, when you look at eGFR, it it helps us sort of uh, look at what's happening. It takes their creatinine, and it and it uses their weight and ethnicity and all these factors and puts out a number and that, and that helps us sort of gauge what their kidney function is.
0: Matt, just a follow up question. If somebody has, if somebody has acute kidney injury, what, what do you, what do you set the EGFR at? You just assume it's less than 30. Is that what yeah, you're dosing I, meds? A
4: very good question. And this is a, you know, when someone comes in with AKI acute kidney injury, uh, this is a dynamic situation. And, and I usually, you know, you assume they have an EGFR uh, of zero, depending on if it's very severe. Um, but it I think it's you just should assume that you're going to basically have no clearance of uh, of anything. Um, and the reason for that is like, well, maybe it went from one to two today, but what's what will it be tomorrow? Um, uh, and so that, you know it the creatinine elevation, uh, only occurs well after the fact of the injury, so you're not really, you know, you actually probably should have done the the dose adjustment on your medications the day prior, but we we, we don't really know, um, you know, there, hopefully in the future, we'll have better markers for acute kidney injury, but in the currently in clinical practice, creatinine is all we have. Sam, do you want to comment on that as well? You're right in the throes of, of, uh, being a a clinical. Yeah,
1: I mean, what you said, I agree. Not all AKIs are created equal. 0.3 increase of creatinine is probably, you know, doesn't need to dose adjust. Uh, But if your GFR is zero, your creatinine will double every day and there's a lag. So I agree with everything you said.
4: Yeah, I was sort of like, uh, you know, when so nephrologists, we see the worst of the worst. And uh, oftentimes, the small elevations in creatinine, we're not we're not really called about. But oftentimes there's subclinical AKI that's happening that, um, and, and we're, we're starting to try to understand that too. Like, what does that mean? What's the significance of that? And, um, but in, in the end, I think uh, being fairly aggressive and, and a, a dose-adjusting medications, there's a great trial uh, that was done in a pediatric hospital that was very proactive about um, dose-adjusting medications and really looking at these changes in EGFR. And they found that it really affected um Outcomes in their hospital uh, i' I'll, I'll pull up the link and send that, but we covered it on fJC uh, a few years back
0: okay so let's get let's get into some some closing comments here on uh on the pain and then we can give our our picks for neph madness so Sam, for this patient, what might based on what we've told you so far so this was a guy who has he has both this knee pain, he has CKD 4 on his way to CKD 5, he's 62 and he's now sort of and he's got neuropathic pain. What might a regimen look like for him? We've kind of already alluded to it, you know, out of the out of the agents we've talked about. So are you going to use NSAIDs, tramadol, the gabagabernergics, the the opioids, what might you what might you do?
1: So, it's tough. I think separating out his different pains. For the neuropathy, that one's the easiest one. I would try a low-dose gabapentin, so starting at 100 milligrams at night. Um, For the knee pain flare from arthritis, um, you know, I think a topical NSAID would be worth trying, uh, you know, like Voltaren uh, or Diclofenac. Um, And if that wasn't cutting it, I probably would go for a short course of Low dose oral hydromorphone, um, you know, one to two milligrams orally every uh, six hours for uh, two to three days with close follow up.
0: Okay, Dave, how about how about you for a patient like this? Uh, we he so he's got both MSK pain and symmetric polyneuropathy. So I would probably try an oral cannabinoid, but it wasn't one of the options on the list.
5: Uh, but I, I, I mean, I, I would use it because um while i don't know the outcome of this little experiment in my patient um i'd be stacking the deck in his favor by using something that's just inherently less less harmful um i might go with a a short-acting opioid like i i i wouldn't go with tram at all because i again i don't know exactly what i'm getting when i give it um i might try a um either some buprenorphine or a an intermittent and very intermittent uh dose of, uh, immediate release. Um, you know, uh, uh, I hate to say it, hydromorphone to low dose would be something to consider. I, I I, would be wary of giving him a long acting agent and I'd, I'd want him to use it very sparingly. Um, but my, honestly, my druthers would probably be with the cannabinoid.
4: Matt? Well, I, uh, I, I think in this scenario here, and I think that it would, uh, as you can hear in our voices, we're challenged uh, to to uh, to really definitively say one because we've we just talked about all the dangers of all of these. Um, I think in this scenario, um, I would uh, have to agree that a, a very short uh, course of opioids would be um, would be reasonable. But I would really hammer the fact that. Um, we need to follow this patient up very closely. So this would be someone I might even see in a week and say, you know, if I were to start them on an agent, you know, how, how are things going? Make sure there's a plan in place for, um, you know, really definitively uh, taking care of this knee pain. If they need to see an orthopedic surgeon, if they have, um, you know, uh, intra-articular injection might be useful in this scenario. Uh, and I would really push a lot of other uh, options that are available to help, to help with the scenario. Um, but I think you know when it's a when it's a patient that's sort of uh, you're not actually in the room and like looking at them eye to eye it's so a scenario like this, I think it it is a challenge to sort of say like I will give x y or z <laughs> huh. yeah, but this is it's a it's a challenge I think that's why we wanted to highlight this, and especially a challenge for someone with diminished kidney function, and we wanted to have this and highlight this in neph madness because. I, I will have, uh, just to be honest, I do think that we do not cover this as much as we should in training programs around the country, around the world, probably.
0: Paul or Stuart, any other, any other remarks before we get into the picks?
4: Yeah, I just had
2: one question. So there was a lot of negative talk about gabapentinoids. So I just want to know what you guys think about the show Yo Gabba Gabba. Are you fans of that one or not?
4: <laughs> All right, Stuart. Thank you for that, uh, Paul.
5: <laughs> gotta,
4: gotta go. Gotta <laughs> go. Uh, that's that's a cue right there. I think. Uh,
0: <laughs> okay.
4: <laughs> so, Dave, Dave, we need to know what your pick is in the pain region of Nef Madness 2019. I mean,
5: this guy is working on a single nephron, so it's kind of hard to go with uh, NSAIDs. Um, I got I have to go with opioids in this guy, and but cautiously, cautiously prescribed
4: not necessarily we have to do it in this guy. We're talking about the tournament. That's okay, though. Yeah. Opioids and, wins for yeah. uh, Dave. And then, and then a second one.
0: Gabinergics versus tramadol.
5: Gabapentinoids versus tramadol. Well, that's just easy. Um, I mean, I'd go with the low-dose pregabalin. Okay. And I'd, then, I'd uh, set tramadol, tramadol on fire. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and And then who would you pick for the overall win out of these four classes of pain meds?
5: So I I would go with a cannabinoid, but it's not an option here. So I'd go with a low dose opioid, intermittent, immediate release, very sparing, and and time limited, ideally.
4: All right, Sam. I think it's up to you now, uh, as the writer of the region. This is this is gonna carry a lot of weight.
1: Yeah. Well, I will have a disclaimer that I loved writing this for. For neph Madness, um, I still don't quite understand what Neph Madness is, and the prolonged <laughs> sports uh, analogy. And I'll tell you that the
4: sports analogy has long since sailed. This is our since our th- seventh year of doing yeah. Neph Madness, and yeah. as I described earlier, here's what we want you to do: is think about which of these topics needs more attention, more discussion. Yeah. It's more important to patient care.
1: Yeah. So between NSAIDs and opioids. Both extremely important to patient care. I'm glad we're talking about it. I think um, I think the NSAID category uh, might teach people more uh, because I think they've gotten a bad rap, and I think there's a really special role for them in kidney disease. So I would go with uh, that one in that bracket. And between gabapentinoids and tramadol, um, this one's kind of an easy one for me. I think I think gabapentin uh, and its Others are a really, a really effective tool when used, uh, you know, carefully. Um, my my bigger soapbox is that patients with kidney disease suffer from so many symptoms, not just pain, but pruritus and neuropathy and restless legs, and uh, gabapentin actually has some effectiveness for a lot of those symptoms. So. Uh, That's in the write-up. I hope that the awareness about that um, increases, and that's why it's my pick. I'd say it's actually my pick for the the whole region.
4: All right. Nice. Okay. So do I need to give mine? I've I've never actually done this in seven years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we definitely want your pick. Okay, but I'll I'll, I'll do it. Um, And thank you. So opioids versus NSAIDs, and I'm going to have to go with uh, NSAIDs. Uh, mainly because I, I study them i i think it's a a an, an, a really quite um intricate system for how the body responds to a lot of stimuli and i as the pendulum swings away from opioids i think we need to uh rethink about uh, how we think about this class of drugs and and so i i agree that it's time to to give them a little bit more discussion than just the flat avoid um and then in the other category of gabapentinoids versus tramadol or tramadol, sorry, uh, I, I'm going to go with gabapentinoids. And um, I, you know, it's probably the only class of drugs that I have seen. At least it's hard to know, like in you know, a one-on-one patient, that's the hard part. It's like the patients say they they feel better from what you're giving them. Uh, but the, it also has the um, the little side addition of uh, baclofen, which I, I like to give that uh, more attention. Um, so that's why I think gabapentinoids wins that out for those two reasons. And the overall winner of the pain region is, it's going to be exactly like Sam. I'm going with gabapentinoids. So uh, that, yeah, that, I think that's going to win our region.
3: I, I, so I, I'm going to agree with our esteemed guest. I think NSAIDs will take opioids. I feel like the, the pendulum is away. And like the NSAIDs and York patients is a neat Ooh. thing that I don't think about much. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to be a contrarian because you people love talking about tramadol. So even though none of us would use it and all of us would favor the gabinergics, I'm going to bet that tramadol is going to hang around because people like discussing <laughs> it. Yeah. And even more contrarian, I'm going to NSAIDs for overall. I think NSAIDs for the region.
4: Wow. And so you think nine nephrologists are going to choose NSAIDs? A hundred percent. I've never been wrong. That's why I
3: win every year.
2: Stuart, I'm going to go NSAIDs as well. And um, I think Tramadol as well. Only because I, I think it needs, needs more press. It needs more bad press. Um, as far as which one's going to win... Probably neither. It's probably gonna be cannabinoids. <laughs> the dark horse. Yeah. <laughs> Topical capsaicin.
1: O- overtime. Oh yeah.
2: Okay. Maybe ketamine. I
0: I, I think I would choose uh NSAIDs as well and tramadol. And I would I would choose tramadol for the win. I I think tramadol is uh, I I mean from my from my perspective I see that one just just thrown away. Like I I still think there's way too few people. That have read uh, the Toxin Hound post on tramadol, and that way too few people understand how that medicine actually works. So I'd like to see that one. Um, I'd like to see that one done more. Justin, did you want to do your pick?
2: Sure, quickly. I would say uh,
3: between opioids and NSAIDs, I would choose opioids just so people can talk about buprenorphine more. <laughs> I think buprenorphine right. is the real winner uh, in gabapentin versus tramadol. I am also going to go with Gabinurgis because I... Or, I'm sorry. I'm going to go with Tramadol. In Gabinurgis versus Tramadol, I'm going to go with Tramadol because I thought the CYP2D6 thing was fascinating and super cool, and that was great. Um, So then in the final between Buprenorphine and CYP2D6, I would go with Buprenorphine and Opiates. But normal saline for the win. Normal saline for the win.
4: Now now you see that you know it's a funny little game and everyone doesn't understand it but look we all know a lot about pain management and ckd now so yeah you know i think it's 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 an effective tool uh for teaching and the the fun continues not after you know when on april 1st (laughs) funny enough it's april fool's day but that is when the first round is announced. So we'll see who is right. Uh,
0: who's right? Really, we're all winners, but I would like a hat.
1: So. Wait, is it about what we want or about who's good? to win? <laughs> <laughs> They're different.
3: This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
2: That's right, Paul. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Justin Burke, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Carpitelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Choo on Facebook. Until next time, I'm Stuart Kent Brigham.
0: I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Wado, <laughs> And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson
3: Williams. And goodbye.